Hey, thank you so much for joining us online at Venue Church for another inspirational message from Pastor Corey Cope. If you were impacted by this message in any way, we would love it if you would share it with your friends online. Yeah, real boats rock. Have you been enjoying our series, My OS, My Operating System, if you're not into stuff? My OS, My Operating System, now I can be part of the cool kids. My OS, I know what that means. My OS, My Operating System, in a sermon I've entitled, Sentimentally, Speaking. First Corinthians, Paul speaks to the Corinthian church and he says this, if, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, you can't even speak the language that your two-year-old speaks, but if you could, <laughs> you didn't think that was, that was funny. You can't speak your husband's language, but if you could, and if you could speak all the languages of earth and of the angels, and if you could do all of these things, but if you didn't love others, Paul says, if I could do all of these things, I would only be a noisy, noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Welcome to the gong show that is our lives. <laughs> Sentimentally speaking, our, our, our series, the whole concept behind this series is that, is that we live in a day of conditional love and unconditional blessing. Which means kids are growing up in our schools and in our homes. They're not sure if they love because they don't, they're not sure if they've earned it yet. But what they do is get a lot of blessing because we live in Canada and we have a lot of stuff. They, get, they tend to get a lot of, not everybody, but most of us. I mean, they tend to get all the blessings without having to work for it anymore. So we live in a day of conditional love and unconditional blessing. We have to turn this around as quickly as we can. Uh, in the week one, I talked about your sense of safety. Sooner or later, love will require you to give up your sense of safety. But most of us, we only love as much as we feel safe. So you get married, and what you mean is like, I'll give you everything except for my sense of safety. You have children, and you're like, okay, child, I'll give you everything except for my sense of safety. You get a job, and you're like, okay, I'll give you everything except for my sense of safety. There is this thing on the other side of your sense of safety that looks like true love the way that God imagined it because love can demand a sacrifice of you. Yeah. Last week we talked about your dreams. Everybody has dreams, but very few of us actually get there. Well, you need influence to accomplish your dreams, and I have dreams, but I need influence. And until I get to this place where I'm like, how do I get influence so that my dreams can be accomplished? Well, we, we talked last week about your influence follows your investment. And your influence, you'll never have more influence than you are invested into the dream that God has put in your heart. Yeah. Today, um, I'm just going to get to it. We are in danger of replacing love with sentiment. When uh, sentiment replaces love in a society, human rights tend to go by the wayside. We are in danger of replacing love with sentiment. Now, um, do we have that slide? Is that, is that, did we do a slide? You can just leave it up for a little bit. Thanks. We're in danger of replacing love with sentiment. Now, there are some things that it's okay to be sentimental about. I'm not the world's most sentimental creature. It may be shocking to find out, like, oh my goodness, it smells great. Yeah, I mean, um, my wife is one of those people that, that, that loves, you know, remember the original show, Annie? Like the original one with, uh, who's in that? Carol, Carol Burnett, yeah. And it was like a terrible show way back in the day. And, now, I grew up in just a family, just my brother and I, so we obviously didn't watch Annie or didn't think that it was cool. But see, my, my wife has these memories of the show Annie. It's hard knock life for us. Jay-Z kind of wrecked it, but kind of made it cool too. 
It's a hard knock. Nobody's watched the movie Annie here? Don't even pretend. It's a hard knock life. And Aaron's trying to get the girls to watch the old movie Annie, but because it was, uh, you know, in their minds, like 100 years old, like, Mom, this movie makes no sense to us. People are dancing around and singing. And, um, and it's weird. <laughs> like Daddy Warbucks. What's a Daddy Warbucks? You know what I'm talking about. Like, you just think it's normal because you used to like it. But now your kids watch it and they're like, Dad, you're so not, not Dad, maybe. Mom, you're like, so not cool. This is not cool. This would not put me in with the cool kids at school. And so, um, so what they did a few years ago, they remade Annie. And um, in the remake of Annie, my wife got the best of both worlds. So my wife loved the old Annie and she looks back to those movies and to The Sound of Music, which is also terrible. And she, <laughs> she looks back, she looks back. <laughs> That was unexpected, y'all. Somebody's dad in the crowd produced the sound of music. The hills are alive. I have all the songs memorized. Um, I'm not gonna say I haven't watched that one. I've watched that one. It's okay, it's okay. But um, Annie, my, my wife looks back at the memory of Annie and she's trying to get my kids to like the original movie of Annie, but it's terrible and they don't. And so, so they remade Annie and so we went to Montana where we used to vacation in, in um, it's kind of like camping, but not camping because the trailer was bigger than my house that we borrowed. And so if you have good friends in Venue Church, they might lend you their trailer. So, because I'm not into like camping, camping. I just, why live like a pioneer anymore? I don't I don't have to like get my hands dirty. Like I want a TV inside. I want all the creature comforts. I can, I'll go to a campfire, but I want to come inside and get all that smoke off me. And it's kind of gross. And I'm not like a camper camper, but our friends had a giant trailer that they lent us. And, and, um, and so I come into the trailer and my girls and wife are watching the new Annie. And I walk in and I'm like, first of all, they're like, you know, Aaron's always trying to get me to watch these movies. But I'm, you know, when you're the only guy in a home and you're outnumbered five to one, like you can tap out a, a couple of times. And so, I'm like, I'm going for a walk. I'm just going to go do something else. And so I come in. So I come in, and she's having this moment. So it's like the old movie Annie revisited now, but now her kids are actually into it because it's not terrible because the remake was actually pretty good. And so she, I come in, and I see the kids, and they're, they're into this movie. And I come in, and, and here's Aaron crying. <laughs> not fair, y'all. And, uh, and I'm like, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? That's what I do when people cry. I just try to crack a joke so that this crying stops. And so for me, when somebody's crying, that means that something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. And if it was fixed, you could stop crying and then I could feel okay. And so I come in and because I love my wife, I'm like, I'm looking at her. I'm just like, is everything okay? Well, according to her, girls can cry and be happy at the same time. There were tears of joy. But when I walked in, because I'm a sensitive soul, my first thought was like, this is, this is exactly what I thought. I'm gonna surprise you. I thought, did her parents get divorced right at the time that she watched Annie for the first time and this is like a whole thing? <laughs> That's what I thought. I'm just like, because it's bad. When people are crying, it's bad, right? And uh, it, was, it was a moment. See, there are those times in your life where you look back and you remember a memory and it's good. And, and, 
But then there's this other sentimental sort of thing that we are in, in danger of. There are those times that are good times, but then there's this other thing that looks like that thing, but it's not that thing at all. And so that you can look back and enjoy that moment and enjoy that moment now with your daughters and have a good moment that's full of love. But then there's this other thing called sentiment. And we are in danger of replacing love with sentiment. Now, sentiment can be described as this. Exaggerated and self-indulgent. Get that? Feelings or thoughts remembering the past. Like sadness, tenderness, these moments. Okay, it's not the memory of those moments or that moment in itself. It is trying to recreate that moment. Have you ever been guilty of this? Trying to recreate a moment from the past that made you feel a certain way. Not necessarily that made you feel a certain way, but that makes you feel the way that you remember feeling. So... Have you ever tried to recreate that moment in sentiment, but what kind of pressure does it put on the people around you to make me feel the way that I felt that, not even the way that I felt, but the way that I think that I felt back then? When you, when you, when you're seven and you get your first puppy and you remember what that felt like, or you think that you remember what that felt like, but now you're like, now you're 37 or you're 67 and you got this old dog now who's like 100 years old in dog years. And you remember the way that you felt then, but then you look at this old thing and you're like, why don't you make me feel the way that I felt back then? And this poor dog is like, woof. Like, oh, master. I'm, I'm not seven weeks old anymore. I'm, and you're not seven anymore. And if you just scratch behind my ear right there, that would be... <laughs> just, yeah, don't stop. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's, I'll say anything you want. I'll pretend like I speak English. I'll, I'll do anything you want. Just don't stop scratching. <laughs> and it's all fun and games until you try to make this dog make you feel like that dog you think that it remembered that you feel. Okay, now I'm talking about love and sentiment here. So remembering the way that you felt or remembering a thought that you had that was transcendent or whatever, you put the pressure on the people around you now. Now, that's one thing for a dog, but what happens if you do that to, okay, let me just set this up for you. You had a moment when you were seven then you climbed up into your dad's lap and it was a tender moment and he read you a story. And now you look at your husband now and you're like, why don't you make me feel like that? And your husband's like, woof. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, you're not seven. You don't even fit in my lap. And like I, you place this, this thing on your, on your kids and on your people at work. Like make me remember like it was. Like let's go back to how it was. But it's not even how it was. It's how I think that it was. Because there's this, this self-indulgent and exaggerated thing that goes on in your heart that you remember. You, I mean, you remember your childhood? I only remember my best days and my worst days. I don't remember anything else. I don't remember eating lunch. I remember all the stupid things I did, which are funny now. And then I remembered all the other things that were meaningful to me. But I don't remember like eating lunch on those days or going to the bathroom. I was going to say that, and I ended up saying that. But I mean, you don't remember all the other stuff. Like even in those moments, there was still pressure in your life, but you pick these things out. And then it becomes the job of everybody around you to recreate that sense and that feeling for you. Now, this is where sentiment and love part ways. Because love might tend to focus on the best in a person and, and not ignore the worst, but love is not exaggerated. 
Just stay with me for a sec. See, sentiment can be exaggerated. Love is not exaggerated. It's true. It's about truth. It's about what's happening and what's going on. Now, I might choose to see the best in you. That can be love. But love does not exaggerate a sense that I have about you. And it doesn't exaggerate your strengths either. But it also, love, sentiment will. Sentiment will exaggerate the person's weaknesses, but love won't. Love is like, no, 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 what's real here? What's, what's real here? See, one is, is, is almost a lie, and the other is self-centered, because it's a self-indulgent look at the past. Love is not self-indulgent. Love is not self-centered at all. What happens in society when sentiment replaces love? Love, love is not exaggerated. Love is not self-indulgent ever. What happens if that's the currency in your marriage right now? What happens if that's the currency in your parenting right now? What happens? See, love does what's right by somebody else. Sentiment does what's right by me. Love does, if, if, if I love you, I, love will do what is right. But if I'm sentimental, and that's what, why I mean by love, then... I'll do what's right by me. And that will be your job too. Love can demand a sacrifice from itself. Sentiment demands one of everyone else. Love demands a sacrifice from itself. But sentiment demands one of of everyone else. See, there's a way to deal with self-indulgence. I mean, join us and we're doing 21 days of prayer and fasting starting today. You hungry, y'all? Um, so give up something. Like give up something and use that time to pray and love people. Like give up chocolate. You got a little chocolate devil on your shoulder that's constantly like, eat me. Eat me. <laughs> give up chocolate. Do something like that. That Give up something and, and you want to deal with self-indulgence and sentiment. Do something like that that disciplines your flesh. Yeah, yeah, that's right. that, that demands a sacrifice of itself without demanding a sacrifice of, of everybody else. It can accomplish things. And I want you to use this time of the 21 days of prayer and fasting. You're welcome to join us if you want. I want you to use those times to pray for your unchurched, unsafe people who have no hope and no purpose and no connection with God in the world. Use the time that you're craving chocolate or that you're giving up Nintendo, if that's a thing, or you're giving up something. Do it for 21 days. And when you're in the throes of that pain because you're not drinking caffeine as much as you used to and your life really is terrible, use that time to remember the people who, who have no connection with God and no connection with people and, and no purpose in this life. Use that time to pray for them and bring them in because we're having a baptism service after. Now, we're probably going to change the date of the baptism service. I'm just going to let you know because of a venue change here that we had. So it's probably going to go on the 17th of February, I think. So talk to the box office if that affects you and you're getting baptized, you want to get baptized. But here's what matters to me more than eating chocolate. And more than remembering self-indulgently my life, it's when somebody uh, from my small group last year, Janice, uh, caught me in the, in the lobby a few weeks ago and was like, I'm ready to get baptized. Unchurched, far from God. Angela invites her to our small group, brings her to church, leads her to Christ. How would you do that without me there? Self-indulgent, Angela. I love being there when somebody gives their life to Christ. But, I, you know, it will deal with your self-indulgence because love can demand a sacrifice of you. And not just a demand of sacrifice of everybody else. But when sentiment becomes a society's currency and, listen, and it's leverage, we're not leveraging love anymore. 
when it becomes a society's currency and a society's leverage, what do the exchanges look like if you are, say, a sentimental friend? So you're somebody's friend, but you're a sentimental friend, not necessarily a loving friend. So what do those exchanges look like? Well, it's their job to make you feel a certain way or make you to remember a certain way or to... But sentiment rarely speaks the truth. Remember, it's exaggerated and self-indulgent. So everything that you say to that person is coming through this filter of like exaggeration and self-indulgence. And so a sentimental friend will rarely speak the truth. You care more about their feelings than you care about their future. I don't mean you go around and speak truth to everybody. That doesn't work either unless you have the right. But you know what I mean? Like these are, this is a friend of yours. You see her doing something that you know is going to wreck her life. But you stay quiet because you're sentimental because you want her to feel a certain way about you. Or a sentimental parent. A sentimental parent is kind of unspokenly asking their kids, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Well, that's not your job to be liked by your kids. It's your job to do right by your kids. Do you like me? Do you like me? I hope that you like me. I hope that, I hope you don't hate me like I didn't like my dad. I hope that you, you know what I mean? Like it's this fear that you have to deal with. Well, sentiment will, will leave you unable to deal with that fear. A sentimental parent, a sentimental business partner. Here's a tricky one, right? You want to talk about exaggeration and self-indulgence. A sentimental business partner, you're in business with them, but they exaggerate the bottom line or they exaggerate an employee who's not doing well. Can I preach? Not doing well, so rather than retrain them or readjust them or move them or fire them because they're going to cost you the company, rather than do that, it's like, oh, well, no, they're my cousin and we've been and we've been. and we... It's not honoring to not give people feedback. And a sentimental business person can run the whole company into the ground. Because they will exaggerate the bottom line and not look at the facts. But love will look at the facts and love will look and deal with reality. What about a, a sentimental marriage partner? Yikes. If you're a sentimental marriage partner, you need to trade it for love right now. Today. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. A sentimental marriage partner. If you're one of those, your spouse one day can do this and you freak out and get angry. And the next day he does the same thing. And you're okay with it. Not only that, but you actually like it. The rules change. Why? Because it all centers on how you feel. Emotionalism. That's not love. That's sentiment. It's your job to make me feel a certain way. Is it everybody's job to make you feel a certain way? Is it anybody's job to make you feel a certain way? That's quite a load for somebody to live under. It's your job to make me feel like this and to remember this and to make it like my parents' marriage and to... It's your job. It's your job. It's hard because the rules keep changing and they can never figure you out. But love will lay down a rule and keep it. If you're a sentimental teenager, you're demanding a TV in your room because everyone else has it and it's a human right. <laughs> it's your God-given right. And how dare your parents and all your little teenage friends at school? A sentimental teenager obeys mom when when mom is making them feel a certain way and when mom makes the sandwich the right way. You don't obey because she's your mom and if you want to eat and live indoors, you'll do it. It's called love. <laughs> it's called love. The blessings are conditional. You can eat porridge, but if you want that sandwich, oh, sweetheart, obey your mother. Or live in Mexico. If you carry a sentimental wallet, sentimental spending, some of us get into trouble sentimental spending, which means that you're generous with people as long as you feel a certain way about it. And yet, to make yourself feel good, you'll spend on whatever you want. 
but you won't provide the needs of your kids. I mean the needs, not the wants of your kids. You won't provide the needs or you won't disciplined give or disciplined budget because you're sentimental about it. You'll control it sentimentally. But love can discipline, and love disciplines, and you say that you have kids. Okay, if you do, then you discipline yourself to give because love requires it of you. And it's not sentimental. You didn't hear a message or like, hey, we sang a song that you liked at church, so you put money in the offering. No, no. No, we give because God gave to us first, and we just want to pass it on to the next one. It's the right thing to do. See, love will always do the right thing to do, no matter how you feel about it, but sentiment won't. Well, absolutely not. Sentiment will do what I feel is right if you make me feel safe and if I get everything that I want. Mm, mm. If you have a sentimental view of God, this is a tricky one, this is a tricky one, because the sentimental view of God will be like, God, make me feel like I did when I got saved at camp when I was 12. God's like, you're not 12 anymore. And you're too big to get on a pony and I can't give you one. A sentimental, God, make me feel like I used to feel. Well, the journey of Christ is, is large enough and strong enough, but it's not a camp by the side of the river. It's the river. You got to get back in the river where things are scary and there's waterfalls and you need help from other people. And it's not the camp by the side of the river. And we try to reproduce a God of sentiment that makes us feel a certain way in Sunday school. But your life is not the, your life in Sunday school. You might have had a great life growing up, but now there's pressure and there's people looking to you and there's work and there's business and there's marital fights and there's all these things going on. No, 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 Christianity is the river. It's not the camp by the river. You might camp there for a week or two or a year, but it's time to get back on the river and, and get rid of the sentimental God. When you're a sentimental Christ follower, you will demand sacrifice from everyone except you. Jesus didn't come and demand a huge sacrifice from you. He demanded it after he sacrificed everything for you. But, oh, make no mistake about it. Love requires a sacrifice. For your neighbors to come into Christ for the city to be saved, it will demand a sacrifice. Love can demand a sacrifice of us. It can. But Jesus sacrificed first. God gave his son first. What happens in a sentimental society? Can I talk about human rights for, for just a minute? This is a tricky part. I've been praying about this for a while. It's tricky, but I think that we need to set things straight here because what happens when you start... Creating laws out of sentiment and not a laws out of love. I think in three generations we have run the risk of replacing love with sentiment. So let's talk about human rights. What are human rights? What are human rights? We could probably agree on things like protection. Like shelter, food. Some measure of dignity. Human dignity. I would say freedom of religion is a human right. That's why your grandparents came here. That's why my grandfather came here. Freedom of religion. Now we're into this other thing where human, uh, human needs equal human wants equal human rights. Human preferences equal human rights. Now, watch how slippery this gets. Watch how slippery this gets. My emotional rights are now human rights. What does that mean? What does that mean? Human rights. My, uh, my great-grandfather was sitting in his home in the Ukraine, and Russian soldiers came in the door like they did back then. He's sitting in his home when they come in the door with their guns and threaten him to, I want your boots. You have a nice pair of boots. And my great-grandfather, you got to know the copes a little bit, had finally had enough, 
and said, if you want them, take them off my feet. Human rights. Human rights. In three generations, human rights aren't human rights anymore. They're human wants and preferences, and you need to make me feel a certain way, and that's, we need to make a law about that. Human rights. So my grandfather comes over here, having not had enough food in the famine, in the Ukraine, his brother went out with a bag full of money to try to purchase groceries. And he could buy with an entire bag full of money one rooster in the famine. Human rights. Human rights. My grandfather comes here at the age of 18, doesn't speak a word of English, um, has like $12, I think, and made a living and a life for himself and his future family by pioneering. So, by pioneering. Now, that work drove him into sickness and drove him in, into, the, into the ground. But because he came here and he had actually experienced a transgression of actual human rights to protection and dignity. Actual. That's what he grew up with. When soldiers can come and do whatever they want to to your sisters and your mother. Actual human rights. He never one time in his life when he came to Canada said that his human rights were violated. Now, I'm not saying that's everybody's experience, but listen, hard work is not a violation of your human rights. Getting up early and staying up late and working hard is not a violation of your human rights. Having more stuff is not getting it is not a violation of your human rights to dignity, to food, to protection. I'm afraid it's not, teenage kid. No TV. My, my father even grew up. At six in the morning, he would have to go out when he, by the time he was, well, let me, okay, nine-year-old. I was looking at my life, uh, the life of Neela at nine years old and what she's hearing in school and, and how kids are talking and, and talk about human rights and stuff like that. And I look at my father, my father at the age of nine had to walk a mile to the school bus and thank God they had a school bus because some people didn't. And so he would walk a mile to the school bus and, and he said he would walk with his sister and sometimes packs of coyotes would trail them and he remembers being afraid. Two generations ago. And yet never one time did he consider that a violation of his human rights. Not the risk. Not the pain. They worked like slaves. Why? Because they had to. Because they had to feed their brothers and sisters. But at least they had food. Never once did they consider it a violation of their human rights. The hardship. The suffering. Never once. Because they weren't suffering for a violation of human rights. That was their experience. I don't know what your experience or your grandparents' experience was. But that was their experience. Never once. But this human rights versus human wants and versus human needs and versus human everything else, now it's all the same thing. So now what we say is my human right, not for you to, to love me unconditionally, now it's your human right to make me feel a certain, it's my human right to make, for you to make me feel a certain way. Which means now, you are not allowed to disagree with me. No more freedom of speech. No more freedom of religion. It's a freedom from religion now. And the nuns, the people who don't subscribe to any religion, are making their own morality as they go and not subscribing to anything else. But God forbid that you disagree with them about something. Now my feelings are hurt because you disagree with me. What is next? You remember the slippery slope in Germany, perhaps, or in the communist countries, perhaps, that our fathers fled from. What's next? What's next? No, I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm just saying, what's next? What's next? What's next? My Muslim brother, it would violate his conscience in his store to sell you alcohol. But because of convenience for me, and I don't want to drive another block to the store down the street, or you don't want to drive for your alcohol. Am I allowed to preach about this right now? I'm saying Jesus did drink wine. I'm not going to lie about it. 
But here's the deal. Now let's pass a law that he has to sell it to me because I don't want to have to drive another block. So violate your conscience, Muslim brother. But he would say that he answers to his God for his conscience. What's next? The, the Jewish shop lady having to sell you pork because you want to get your pork in your other, at the same place? What's next? Human rights versus human preferences versus human wants. Why? Because we are creating laws about sentiment now. Which means the pedestrians will create laws that favor the pedestrians and the people who are in a hurry and need to drive on the pedestrian path just a, a few times a month when they're late for work will make a law saying that's okay too. One is a preference and one is a human right to not die. Sentiment. Sentiment. What happens when we find it in our homes? What happens when we find it in ourselves? What happens when that becomes our currency in our relationships? Sentiment. Each of us answers to his own God. And if I love you unconditionally like Jesus did, I'll respect you. And I'll make a sacrifice for you. But I won't demand that you make one for me. So that I feel a certain way. I get all that I need from God. And I get all that I need from my brothers and sisters right here. That's not your job, and I don't want to put that weight on you. See, Jesus' love was not sentimental. It did what was right no matter how he felt. It did what was right by the human race no matter how he felt. And when sentiment becomes the currency and love is thrown out, then tolerance is also eventually thrown out. Whoever has the loudest voice wins then. And then all we do is take the hate in our heart, and we say, if you disagree with me one more time, I'm going to say that you're full of hate. Well, it's kind of like, you know, if you're the one saying it, it's probably not coming from the other person, it's probably coming from you. Easy. Is it a human right or not? To dignity. A freedom of religion. Uh, protection, shelter, food, safety. But see, my grandfather and your grandfather, their definition of love would be different than our definition of love. And when we read through the, the, the love chapter in the Bible that Paul was writing to the Corinthian church... He meant a certain definition of the word love that we don't mean. So we read through it and we try to put a human spin on it. Like this is what we mean when we say this. But it's sentimental just because we live here. It just makes sense to us. We, we unconsciously put our definition of love into it, but it was never God's definition of love. So there are different types of love in the world here. Uh, there's the first one, which is, which is eros uh, in the Greek. There's four definitions of the word love. And eros, which is Greek for like a sexual love. Now, if you're under 12 and you're in here, you should be in the kids because I have to say the word sex occasionally. But it is a sexual love. Now, we are, have hyper-sexualized society here. We think that that is the only kind of love. Well, anybody who knows that you've tried to fill up your cup with that kind of love and only that kind of love, it will never satisfy you because it's just one of the four words. It's just, it's just one of them. But it's not like love, love. It's just this physical thing, this chemical thing. Then there's this other word that's like a familial love, which is called storge, which is a Greek word that means familial love, which means like if you're in my family, I love you. So I'm tied to you. I'm bound to you in some regard. Then there's this philia love or Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And this might be kind of the strongest type of human love that exists because it's, it's like, you know, I'll do right by you. Um, brotherly love. I'll treat you like my brother. I'll, you know, I mean, and, and it's a good love. And there's nothing wrong with these types of love. But it, it's, it's the, the extent of human love. But now Paul, and now your grandfather would say, we used to subscribe to a different type of love that wasn't even physically possible for you to do. 
if it comes from inside of you. And uh, David Guzik in his commentary says this, agape is the fourth word for love. It is a love, are you ready? This is going to hurt your feelings. It is a love that loves without changing. Meaning you could do whatever and I would love you the same. You might not get the same blessing. Blessing is conditional. But I would still love you completely, holy. You could, dis- you could throw me in jail. You could burn my body at the stake. And I would still love you like Jesus loved me. All in. Totally in. This kind of love has no hate inside of it. It can't. Because that's not who it is. He says, it is self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or the unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It gives because It loves. If you're struggling being generous with God, it's because the love of God isn't in your heart. Because if it was, you would give because you love. If you loved your sons and your daughters the way that God wants you to, you would give and you would sacrifice yourself for them because that would be who you are. But it's not who we are yet because we're still striving in the human realm for this to come from me, which means I'll love you as long as I feel like it. And God's like, there's this whole other love that I brought to the earth that you can have if you ask for it. It gives because it loves, it does not love in order to receive. According to Alan Redpath, listen, we get our English word agony from agape. It means the actual absorption of our being into one great passion. Like, I love you, I'm so consumed with loving you, the passion of the Christ. I'm so consumed with loving you, not one great memory that you're trying to achieve again. One great passion. When I bleed, that's what I bleed. It can be defined as a sacrificial, giving, absorbing kind of love. The word has little to do with emotion and has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. 1 Corinthians 13 and 1. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It would be empty and you could feel it. But this love is, is not philia, it's not eros. It's not storge, it is agape. That is the definition that he's talking about. This love that didn't come from the human race, but came to the human race. If I could speak, but didn't have that, can you say that you have that in its entirety? I can't. I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's why people, they come into churches, they don't feel the love of God because we haven't loved them before they got here. We're like, yeah, believe everything we believe and then we'll love you. What? And Jesus in heaven is like, what are you even talking about? Is that a thing? It's not a thing. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Didn't agape others, I would, it would be like nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, there is much sacrifice done. But in the name of this, He said, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing by my sacrifice. You sacrifice much for your family, but it's not in this spirit of agape. That's why it turns out to be nothing in the end. Because your love needs to mature. Then he says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. All the other types can be. You can just redefine it. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. Even if you're Irish... Cora, 
Especially if you're Irish. It keeps no record of it. It lets it go. It doesn't have to remember to feel a certain way anymore. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. Sentiment will is always hopeful. Sentiment isn't and endures through every circumstance. And sentiment cannot. But this kind of love can. When I was a child, he says, I spoke and thought, verse 11, and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. And let me end that there. He's saying, okay, part of what you, you understood to be love, it's not like it was bad. It's not like it was bad. There's some part of sentiment. It's not a bad thing. But he's saying, people, he's saying, if you subscribe to follow Jesus, there's a different love that you need to subscribe to in its entirety. And your love needs to grow up. It just needs to grow up. It needs to be modeled after Jesus would say, my love, when I was here. That kind of love where people who were nothing like me liked me. Where people who disagreed with everything I was going to tell them still felt my love so much that they still came to listen. That people who disagreed with everything I was going to say and we can live beside each other in freedom of religion, believing different things. And as long as it's not a violation of actual human rights, we love and respect each other unconditionally, that I would live and die for somebody else to be able to maintain their religion because it's a human right, not a human preference. Because a love like this will sacrifice its own freedom to make sure that you could be free. But sentiment never will. It's not that strong. That kind of love. Gregory says, people of little religion are always noisy. He who is not the love of God and man filling his heart is like an empty wagon coming violently down a hill. It makes a great noise because there's nothing in it. (laughs) What happens when, when in a church that proclaims the name of Jesus, what happens in that church when we replace, we replace uh, love with sentiment? What happens in a church when we replace love with sentiment? Well, then you'll put on a better suit jacket, but you won't buy a life jacket for somebody who's dying in the water beside you. You'll, you'll treat church like it's a cruise ship, but not a rescue mission. Not a battleship going to war against Satan for the souls of your neighbors and your friends, for their ultimate freedom and their purpose. What happens when sentimentality enters the church and replaces the sacrificial love of Jesus? Well, then we sing songs sentimentally because they meant something to us 30 years ago. But your neighbor could walk in and be like, thee, thou, that doesn't make any sense to me. But we still sing it because we're trying to recreate a moment that we used to have. Now sing it in your prayer time at home. But remember why you're here. Sentimental religion. Not the love and sacrifice of Jesus. Not the actual sacrifice that could demand a sacrifice of everything. Every ounce of my freedom so that one person could not be free but have an opportunity to be free. The same type of life that Jesus gave us an opportunity for. When sentiment enters the church, we'll demand a sacrifice of everybody around us. But we won't demand it of ourselves first. I am. Um, I heard in a... I'm going to step on somebody's toes, I guess I... I heard in a, in a religious school, in a Christian school, that the song Reckless Love, which we are singing next, was banned from a chapel experience 
because one or two people complain that the love of God is not reckless. It's not reckless. It's not reckless. It's not reckless. I'm thinking, I don't know anything that's more reckless than the love of God. That's more self-sacrificial with zero, complete 100% investment with zero guarantee that you were ever going to come and love him. Reckless, insane, to the point of insanity, hanging on a cross saying, Father, forgive them, when nobody was asking for it. That sort of reckless, insane, all-in kind of love that you come to church today and you're like, I don't know if I can measure up. And Jesus is like, that is so not the point. You can't. I did. And when God looks at you and you come into my family, he sees me. It's my righteousness. It's not your righteousness. I paid the whole ticket. Now come and follow me and, and get up on a cross and sacrifice your life for your neighbor. That's what Jesus would say to us today. Reckless love. So walk out of here and show people the kind of love you've been shown. And because I love you, I'm going to demand that of you. If you call yourself a Christ follower, walk out of here in the love that Jesus would have walked out of here with. Heavenly Father, today we didn't even know that that's what you were talking about when you said the word love. We had humanized it, and in humanizing it, we dehumanized it too. Father, we pray that you would forgive us and heal us from leveraging any other type of sentiment other than true love. This kind of love, Father, is not even in us. But if you would lend us some of yours today and teach us your ways, well, then we could. Then we could be full of this kind of love. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this inspirational message from Pastor Corey Cope. If you'd like to partner with us, please go to venuechurch.ca slash give. Yeah, because a life saved is worth everything.